0: I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examines. Apprehension and fear, the feeling of nervousness. Why have anxiety and anxiety disorders reached such epidemic proportions?
1: We've started to equate mental health with an absence of all emotional discomfort. And so now we have this sort of standard of really a a toxic standard of positivity where we feel that unless we're happy all the time, and crushing it all the time, and optimized for everything all the time like a robot, we are
0: failing in mental health. And later, how to cope with an anxious child? Should parents stop trying to remove every obstacle and discomfort in their child's path?
1: Yes, we feel anxious about our kids' anxiety, but we don't have to. We don't have to fear that anxiety will break them or that they can't survive it or work through it. Kids are anti-fragile. They are strong, and if we help them work through anxiety, That will be the best support we can give to our child and our children.
0: Understanding anxiety and its surprising upside that's coming up on Life Examined. This week, we wanted to touch on something that actually came out of last week's interview with Rabbi Steve Leder of Los Angeles. In a candid moment, Rabbi Leder shared he'd finally gotten professional help to deal with something he'd been struggling with for years—anxiety. And he's not alone. The statistics are somewhat staggering— Approximately one-third of all Americans are dealing with some sort of anxiety issue or anxiety disorder, and that includes our young people and kids. Of all the mental health illnesses, anxiety disorders are the most common. In the first year of the pandemic, the World Health Organization estimated a 25% increase in the prevalence of anxiety and depression worldwide, and urges all countries to pay more attention to mental health as the numbers are on the rise. But are current efforts to control our anxiety actually making it worse? Is anxiety the problem, or is our fear of it and our attempts to avoid it making us weaker and more fragile? Tracy Dennis-Tiwari is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Hunter College in New York, where she directs the Emotion Regulation Lab. Her latest book is called Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You Even Though It Feels Bad. Well, Tracy Dennis-Tiwari, welcome to Life Examined. Great to have you on for the full hour.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be with you.
0: Let's just talk about some of the, the staggering statistics that are out there. Um, I've heard, for example, that it could be up to 30% of adults could be dealing with some level of anxiety or an anxiety disorder. Can you talk about just what we're seeing in the world around us, or at least in the U.S.?
1: Right. The mental health crisis that we're facing is is really quite profound, and it dwarfs any other kind of disease. Um, And so when we look at mental health in general, uh, a full half of us will struggle with a mental health problem in our lifetime. So that's tens and tens of millions of us um, just in the United States alone. And then anxiety disorders are the most common of the mental health diseases. And a third of us, the stat you were mentioning, a third of us will be clinically anxious, really suffer from debilitating anxiety, again, in our lifetime. But when you start parsing out you know, in any one year how many people are suffering, you know, how many kids are suffering, really we're always between hovering around 20 to 30% of people are struggling with anxiety.
0: Why do you think anxiety is the most common of these mental health disorders?
1: Oh, that's, that's a great question. I think that we often feel as if we're living in an overwhelming age of anxiety. It's the word that we've settled on <laughs> in a way, right? And when I, you know, I'm a Gen Xer and when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, the word, our go-to word for any sort of uncomfortable feeling was stress. So if you were going through something really hard, you would say, I'm really stressed out. And if you were, go, if you were planning your wedding and going through something really joyful, you would say, I'm stressed out. So it, it's this placeholder. And the thing about anxiety as a placeholder for emotional discomfort is that the fundamental ingredient in anxiety is uncertainty. It's anxiety, it feels like fear, but it's actually not fear. Anxiety is apprehension. This nervous feeling that we get when we anticipate the uncertain future, right? What's around the bend? It hasn't happened yet. Something bad could happen, but also something good. And if there's any one word that describes our times right now, I think it is uncertainty. So I think like the first time that at the age of anxiety was applied to a period of time, and that was actually when um, w. H. Auden wrote uh, his epic poem called *The Age of Anxiety* right after World War II, and of course, talk about another time of yeah. every assumption you had about the world getting blown out of the water, everything just seeming a, a new world order that you were facing. I think now, with our rapid technological changes, fresh out of a pan, you know fresh out of, but also in a pandemic. Um, all the changes that we see in our economic lives and our social lives, I think that we feel that uncertainty very strongly mm.
0: i think you're you 're really smart to pick on the the language here or the the popularity of certain words because i i 've noticed this as well that anxiety has just become such such a common word i mean i I, I was reading one of your pieces that it was like the Oxford word of the year or something last year, yeah. right? It, 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 so <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's so commonplace to say, I'm feeling anxious or I'm dealing with anxiety. And I think, therefore, the word then becomes a catch-all for a lot of emotions, just as stress might have been. So I think it, it is important for us to actually narrow the definition into something a little bit more precise versus thinking it's something we're always feeling all the time, you know?
1: I agree. it's it's this sort of we paint it's this, and it's it's because clearly anxiety is not a good thing to us when we use that mm. word, you know it's right. and so we paint every experience that's uncomfortable or uncertain with this very um, broad brush of negativity and fear. And there's so many problems with that <laughs> approach. And I think that we mental health professionals have really been part of this problem. it's It's really one of the reasons i I felt moved to write this book because, We have a lot of uh, mistakes to make up for, to make amends for. So we've started to equate mental health with an absence of all emotional discomfort. And and so now we have this sort of standard of really a, a toxic standard of positivity where we feel that unless we're happy all the time and crushing it all the time and optimized for everything all the time like a robot, we are failing in mental health and there's there's a few i mean there's (laughs) there's probably a list of a dozen things that are problematic about that but when it comes to anxiety there are very specific things that that causes problems with one is that we start to feel as you've said when we've given this vague name to every uncomfortable feeling we call it anxiety we start to feel that um, these feelings are dangerous and are you know it's this disease story we tell right that these are these dangerous feelings and the only solution to a disease is to eradicate it and prevent it. And the other thing about a disease or something that's dangerous is that it's probably a malfunction. Mm. So that means we have to fix it. So this, this kind of two-part disease story of anxiety unfortunately causes us an, or, or kind of primes us to do all the things that are most unhelpful when it comes to anxiety. So first of all, it makes us not become granular, as you were saying, kind of vaguely talking about anxiety instead of getting granular. And we start to lose the ability to tell healthy anxiety from unhealthy anxiety or an anxiety disorder. It just all becomes the same thing. And then we start avoiding it, which causes anxiety to only increase and become more intense.
0: Can you talk about how anxiety has functioned maybe in the evolution of humans? Or like, what what was the evolutionary, Point of it, um, I, I'd imagine there's been some research there.
1: Um, there, there is, in so much as we can research evolutionary theory, which is kind of famous as a field for not being able to research. We do, we do thought experiments, Jonathan. But, but, um, but, but, but really, this um, this comes down to um, not just evolutionary theory, but um, a, a, an aspect of emotion science that was very influenced by evolutionary theory, which is called um, functional emotion theory. Hmm. And, and really, and the first functional emotion theorist was actually Darwin, going back to evolution. The third book in his trilogy and on, his, on his magnum opus, his evolutionary theory, was called The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals. So he devoted a whole third of his evolutionary theory to emotions. And the distinction um, between anxiety and other emotions is very important here. So anxiety is not the same as fear um, because fear is the feeling we get when we are certain in the present moment that we are facing a threat, like someone coming at us with a knife, uh, a snake about to bite us, or a saber-toothed tiger, right? so that, so, and um, we assess that that's the situation of certain threat, and the emotion prepares us to act in defense. Fight, flight, freeze, right? So that's sort of the classic fear. We all understand that. We have started to equate anxiety with that reaction, but it is much more than these three Fs of, of freezing, fight, and flight. Anxiety is instead not in the present at all. It makes us into mental time travelers into the future. As I would mentioned before, it's this apprehension about the uncertain future so that we know, and this is where the evolutionary triumph of it all comes in, we take this unique human capacity to imagine and plan for the uncertain future, to actually simulate it in our mind. What anxiety does is also increase levels of the neurotransmitter dopamine. In our brain and dopamine actually primes us to work towards positive goals. It also increases levels of the social bonding hormone oxytocin, which primes us to seek out social support and social connection. So it actually helps us seek out support that helps us manage anxiety in the moment and draw on our social capital, our social resources. It makes us more persistent, it makes us more innovative, it actually, especially in moderate to you know, kind of moderately high doses, makes us more creative. So anxiety does all these other things. It primes mm. us and recruits our biology in ways that we never talk about. And that's why we don't see the advantages that it also
0: contains. Mm, interesting. There's a very poignant story that you write about in the book. It has to do with, with something you experienced while you were pregnant. And I, I was wondering if you, could, if you could tell us that story.
1: Yes, that was one of the most anxiety provoking experiences of my life. And it was a, an, an enduring experience. When I was 20 weeks pregnant, I discovered at my, you know, mid-pregnancy uh, ultrasound that my firstborn, my son, uh, had a congenital heart condition. So we were very lucky uh, in the sense that we caught it while I was still pregnant. So now you can imagine how, you know, my husband and I, we were pretty devastated. Um, I remember crawling into bed and, and, and just feeling like I didn't want to get out and, and kind of crying myself to sleep. I took a nap. I I really feared for his life because this was a, uh, a heart condition that would, rec- would require open heart surgery and could be life threatening. But then I woke up from the nap, I kind of dried my tears and then my anxiety kicked in. <laughs> and, and, and what that did for me is it helped me fight off despair and it sent me into this future tense where, okay, I knew that I had to work really hard to make sure my son had the best chance possible at surviving and really, and, and not only surviving, but thriving after this condition. So I got on the phone, I called every doctor friend I knew and I found out where the best cardiothoracic surgeon was. What, tr- what practice should I go to to make sure that we're ready for open heart surgery at birth if need be? How do I get the best prenatal care? How do I... So I went into action mode. And despite lots of barriers and, and worries, I, I persisted. My husband and I were working very hard. And then when I had my son, Covey, um, we had another big challenge ahead. We had to make sure that he didn't have failure to thrive and not be able to successfully live through open-heart surgery, and so we had a lot of work to do there. So, so long story short, there was action I needed to take, I needed to persist through obstacles, and very importantly, and again, we don't think of anxiety this way. I needed to keep hoping and believing that a good outcome was possible. When we despair, we believe that hope is, is gone, that it's extinguished, but anxiety is not that kind of an emotion. Anxiety keeps us believing that we have possibility in the world, that we have control in the world and that we can still hope for a good outcome. Yeah. And so that, I believe, as painful as anxiety was, it also was my ally in that time. And I had to negotiate with that ally. I had to work through my anxieties. I had to make sure it didn't start getting in my way. I had to keep actively coping and take care, taking care of myself. But I believe that anxiety helped me be the best mom possible through this very difficult period in our life.
0: Yeah. No. It's a. It, it, it's a really important story, and I think maybe though what separates you from from some others is that you used the anxiety to take action whereas i think you hear of a lot of people that feel so debilitated by this feeling of worry of the future that it leaves them in more of a paralytic state and it was just, it's, it's too hard to even make a decision or move forward. So can you address that too? Because I think that's also very common.
1: Yes, it is. And, and, you know, even the word for anxiety, that the root of the word comes from Latin and Greek and, and, and even older, you know, uh, words for choke, hmm. to choke. And so it, it does happen to us when we're overwhelmed with anxiety and I have had those experiences. And even in, in preparing and caring for my son, I had those experiences. Here's the thing, I don't think anyone should ever feel like a failure for feeling stuck with anxiety. When we're overwhelmed, that is part of the journey of, of learning to actually live with anxiety because it, it, isn't, it doesn't always feel livable. I also had tremendous privilege. I had the privilege of having a husband who was in this journey with me together. I had resources. I was able to find the right doctors. So I also had incredible privilege. So I really want to give the message out there that the times that we don't have the resources, don't have the privilege, when we're not able to beautifully, you know, and I didn't beautifully work through my anxiety. Don't get me wrong. I I, I really, there were lots of moments that were messy and terrible. I don't want people to feel that that was a failure. At the same time, when we start to think of anxiety as something that we can fall down from but also pick ourselves up from again, we start to think of it as, 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 I think we should think of all mental health, as something to work towards. Not as a state you have it or you don't. Right? You have perfect mental health or you don't. It's like a practice. It's like if you think of anxiety as this wave, sometimes it drowns us. Sometimes you know, we get pushed down and our face is against the sand. But we can also get back up and we can learn to swim and we can build skills to handle those waves. And, and, and it's like any sort of health state that we're working towards. We can, if we know that we're not physically fit, we can start to build fitness. If we know that that run, you know, I'm going to switch analogies completely and say, you know, I'm a horrible runner, but if I wanted to become a marathon runner, I know that I could keep working at it and first run a quarter mile, then a half mile and then a, and then a mile and build and build. And we can treat our anxiety in the same way. So after we've failed, or it feels like we failed, we can get better at it. And that's the real message of this book for people. Not that if you're debilitated by anxiety, you failed, but that anxiety is a feature of being human. It's not a bug, it's not a malfunction, and we can get better at it, and we can learn, and we can work through it. We don't have to work around it. Yeah,
0: and part of this, I think, is is the recognition that one is actually experiencing anxiety or what could be an anxiety disorder. And I think you may agree with me or not here. I mean, one of the the tricky aspects of mental health is there's no blood test that you take or no swab that gives you an answer. So you're relying more on psychological tests or symptoms, and symptoms can feel very subjective day to day. And so I guess I'd like you to talk a little bit about the difference between commonplace anxiety a, a natural feature of being a human and and when something tips over into an actual anxiety disorder which requires clinical treatment
1: that's a crucial distinction and i think that's why the disease model of anxiety causes more harm than good because it's not there's no blood test as you say it's not like cancer where clearly you get cancer you need to eradicate it you need to prevent it and anxiety disorders are not that way so The key difference between anxiety and an anxiety disorder is not having intense or frequent anxiety. I can have intense anxiety every day and I won't be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder unless the ways that I'm coping with that anxiety are getting in the way of living my life fully and in ways that give me fulfillment and joy. So for example, again, if I have the example I used before, intense social anxieties, I can have strong anxieties every day. But it's only when I start not going to work anymore, mm-hmm. when I start staying inside and never seeing friends anymore, when, you know, when, when, again, these are ways of coping with those anxieties. is disrupting. It's called functional impairment. It's only when you have functional impairment that you actually diagnose an anxiety disorder. Mm. And, and that's important because, as you say, again, no blood test for an anxiety disorder, but we can look at ourselves in our life and say, okay, I've been really struggling with this anxiety. I've been handling it okay so far, but I just got tipped over the edge because life just threw me one too many curveballs and I I just, I need that extra support. So a lot of figuring out the difference is knowing when we need that extra support, remembering at the same time that mental health is not the absence of emotional discomfort. (laughs) You know, so, so to know that we can struggle and, but I think all of us should see therapists and, sp- and speak to them frequently because it's always great to have another perspective, or if not a therapist, a religious, uh, uh, advisor or a great friend who makes you get that perspective that, you know, just always is helpful.
0: What about though, aside from seeing a therapist or, or other type of, of guide, which I think is, you know, obviously so valuable, um, I mean, we hear of, of medications as well that are used to treat anxiety, and um, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the over-prescription of things like benzodiazepines. This is clonopin, Ativan, Xanax, um, also the fear of addiction through some of those as well, and then treating it through antidepressants, like SSRIs. But I mean, do you feel that for those that need medication, that there are good answers out there and that people should go that route if they need it?
1: I think that medication can be a very important helpmate when we need to seek therapy for debilitating anxiety. Mm. I, at the same time, believe that benzodiazepines in particular are radically overprescribed and they're prescribed in irresponsible ways because what people have not been taught properly or to the full extent is the risks that they pose both for addiction. Um, as as well as for other kinds of side effects and synergistic effects with other substances, and we also haven't been taught that benzodiazepines were never intended to be a long-term solution. Mm. The first of all, the science of them, which they're serious, you know, these are very serious drugs. They um, have been prescribed to hundreds of millions of people, and they are. Highly um, risky when it comes to overdose and um, and especially when combined with other kinds of painkillers, uh, substances, other nervous system depressants so we don't we're really not aware enough of how addictive they are and how risky they are, and we think that we should just every time we feel um, anxious nervous when we 're struggling, we should as they say pop a Zanny. you know it should be something in our pocket and we just use it. but the science shows again and again and again that The most effective and least risky way of using benzodiazepines is in combination with therapy, not alone, and as a short-term solution to help bring people back down to a baseline where they're not so overwhelmed by anxiety that they can then benefit from therapeutic treatments that are gold standard. Mm. So if we think of the, the old adage, you know, give a person a fish and they'll eat for a day, teach a person to fish, they'll eat for a lifetime. Benzodiazepines and other anti-anxiety meds are the fish, and cognitive behavioral therapies and other validated therapies are teaching people the fish. And it's really crucial that we don't, uh, that we mental health professionals don't convey this idea that, oh, you're anxious, just take Xanax or some other anti-anxiety medication and that's your lifelong solution. They were never meant to be that.
0: Yeah. You know, it's so interesting in the medical profession. If you're a prescriber and somebody comes in with symptoms, the easiest thing to do is to write a script, of course, and and I think that's that's the power of medical professionals. And and yet, I think that and and there's clearly moments where that's so important. I mean, I, I believe that medication saves lives, um, but. But it is true that we we've ended up in just as you say, kind of just treating treating the symptom, giving the fish perhaps more than looking at the underlying causes.
1: I agree, and we can also see a broader societal trend here when we look at the opioid crisis. I think
0: mm.
1: that the and the benzodiazepine crisis, which is you know when you look at overdose deaths, leading is still are still the opioids, followed by benzodiazepines. And I think that the common thread here is that we believe that all experiences of pain, physical or emotional, need to be immediately dulled with powerful drugs. And again, as you say, these drugs can also save lives, but they're being used in radically irresponsible ways. Of course, I don't need to educate anyone about the opioid crisis. I I think we're all fully aware at the terrible Toll of, of the wide and over-prescribed use of opioids on all of our, uh, our, our I mean, we're probably all one degree removed from someone yeah. who's really been affected. But I feel that it's this attitude of the medical professionals that, oh, you come in, you say you're upset on a regular basis with anxiety. I'm gonna give you a drug first before anything else. I think that is a real disservice because again, it's only when it's in combination with cognitive behavioral therapy or other therapeutic um, Skill-based techniques that we have a, a actually a science telling us that use of medications can be helpful to uh, someone suffering from anxiety.
0: Really fascinating point here. I mean, and and I remember just reading myself about the opioid epidemic, and in one of the 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 kind of marketable pieces of all of this was that pain is bad. Any type of pain is bad. And I think you're making, I think, an important connection here, which is not just physical pain, but any type of mental pain is also bad. It needs to be eradicated. And, and maybe you can speak a little bit more about, I think, this cultural idea that, that we need to dull these things. And it may not just be through those, but it could be through alcohol. It could be through uh, cannabis. I mean, there's a lot of ways that we do this.
1: It's the dulling of emotional pain that I think is at the crux of the mental health crisis we have now. And it's kind of, you know, it's a little counterintuitive, right? Mm. Because we have these great treatments and we have growing awareness and we're even destigmatizing mental health problems. And that all seems great. But the problem is along with those good trends is this trend to believe that all emotional discomfort is dangerous. And again, the problem with that is it primes us to do the most unhelpful things, more of the unhelpful things when it comes to mental health. And those are really, they fall squarely in this category of avoiding uncomfortable feelings, numbing the pain immediately, never actually building skills and and believing that emotions are anti-fragile. And this is a really important concept I want to bring to the conversation here because um, we think of ourselves as emotionally fragile and so that when we're anxious we are, are damaging ourselves. Something that is fragile is like a teacup. You drop it on the floor and it shatters into a million pieces and you can never put it back together again. The concept of antifragility, which Nassim Nicholas Taleb coined in his book Antifragility, is really the opposite of this. Something that's antifragile actually gains from being challenged. It gains from disorder and difficulty and strain. So the immune system is antifragile. Because unless we actually are exposed to viruses and bacteria and germs, and our immune system will never actually, our immune system will never learn to mount an immune response. It just can't work because, until it's challenged by these pathogens. Muscles are anti-fragile, because if you never strained and worked a muscle, it would atrophy. And the, and the, and the fact, and, and what science shows us in clinical practice, and honestly, I think um, kind of millennia of wisdom, <laughs> whether you know philosophical and spiritual and otherwise, is that our emotions are also anti-fragile. And, and here I'm going to quote um, someone who I think is probably the patron saint of anxiety, mm. um, a, a philosopher that people both love and hate, uh, Soren Kierkegaard. Um, and he wrote a whole book about anxiety 180 years ago, mm. and he wrote, whosoever learns to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. He also said, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. So, and he said so much more. <laughs> and, and, and really, the, the, the take home there is that anxiety is a feature of being human. It is part and parcel of the messy work of being human. And we can work with it. And when we cease to do that, that is when the problems begin. So, so I think this idea that we're emotionally fragile instead of anti-fragile is actually a linchpin and why we're struggling more with mental health possibly more than ever before.
0: We'll be back with Tracy Dennis tiwari after this short break. And just a quick minute for us to say a huge thank you to those of you who continue to join our New Life Examine Facebook group. We've loved reading your comments on last week's conversation with Rabbi Steve Leader. Thank you to Monica Baumgard and Anna Wolf for the wonderful poems. Judy White-Watts, Dahlia Hardwick, Tia Bentley, Janet Schlesinger, and Christine Williams for sharing your personal stories and thoughts. Please continue to share with us and with others. It's so nice to know you're listening and we can build an open, honest, and thoughtful community around these topics. Oh, and keep those show suggestions coming. We're taking a look at some of those for late summer and fall. Lastly, a big shout out to fellow KCRW host and fan of the show, Mr. Tom Schnabel. We appreciate you. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash life examined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. We'll be back with more on anxiety after this short break. This is Life Examines on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Stay close. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We're continuing our conversation with Tracy Dennis-Tawari, professor of psychology and neuroscience and director of the Emotion Regulation Lab at Hunter College. Her book, Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You, Even Though It Feels Bad, explains some of the startling statistics on anxiety. For example, over the last 15 years, prescriptions for anti-anxiety medications have quadrupled with a sharp rise for those under 25. Let's jump back into the conversation this gets, I think, to some really important questions around parenting that you've thought about as well. I, I, I love the expression, a snowplow parent. Um, we used to have helicopter parents, but the snowplow is an interesting one. And I, I'll, I'll let you describe what it is. I think you can do a better job of it than me.
1: I'm sure you could do a wonderful job. I will jump into that. And as a parent, I think a, an awful lot about this. So right, the, in the 90s, it was the, the helicopter parenting kind of hovering around their child. And, and, we, and we talked about how, oh, you're overprotecting your child. But then um, in the aughts and beyond, we have the this new creature called the snowplow parent, which is a parent um, who, uh, like a snowplow, removes all obstacles in the way, just plows through any obstacle in the way of what they perceive as their their child's success or happiness. And so what that means when it comes to anxiety is that we parents all all you know really out of the best of intentions we see our kids struggling with something. We see them nervous, we see them worried, we see them, you know, facing some struggles at school and our reaction now is that we need to remove all of that discomfort and get them to feeling better. Mm. Now the now, of course, that seems wonderful, and that's what loving parents have the instinct to do. The problem there is that it's a huge opportunity cost when it comes to our children developing true emotional intelligence and emotional grit, which means, because emotions are anti-fragile, if we never allow our, to, our children to struggle with negative emotions, to feel bad sometimes, they will not gain the skills to learn how to feel good. Um, and we we see this very clearly in children who struggle with anxiety. There's a beautiful treatment that's a a new treatment that's come out of the Yale Child Study Center and they've done a number of great studies on this treatment. It's called SPACE, uh, which is called Supportive Parenting for Anxious Children. And the key to SPACE is that most therapy when kids struggle with anxiety is directed towards the kid, right? And often it's cognitive behavioral therapy, a great therapeutic treatment. So you have kids who have social anxiety, they're refusing to go to school, maybe they need to sleep with their parent all the time, they won't leave the house. And so you put them into cognitive behavioral therapy and you teach them to work with their difficult feelings and to learn different ways of coping. Well in space the kids don't receive any therapy at all, the anxious kids. Instead the parents are taught to stop snowplowing around their children's difficult experience. They're taught to stop over accommodating children's anxiety which means Yes, they don't wanna see their children suffer. I feel this all the time with my own kids who are 10 and 13. Um, so if you know if your child can't sleep alone in their bed anymore, the over accommodating parent will just let them sleep every night in the parent's bed. But that is getting in the way of the child actually learning to cope with the anxiety. So for six weeks, parents in the space intervention are taught to little by little help their kids work through the anxiety provoking situations and stop Um, avoiding those situations and teach them new coping skills. And what they found in clinical trials where they compared kids who themselves received therapy versus the space intervention, anxious children whose parents learned to stop accommodating, over accommodating, they showed comparable reductions in clinical anxiety compared to kids who got therapy themselves, the best treatment available. And so what this shows is not that we should blame parents Mm -hmm. (laughs) for everything, but that we parents can know, yes, we feel anxious about our kids' anxiety, but we don't have to. We don't have to fear that anxiety will break them or that they can't survive it or work through it. We act, Kids are anti-fragile. They are strong. And if we help them work through anxiety, we will do them the best. We, that will be the service. That will be the, the service that we can give to our child and the best support we can give to our child and our children.
0: Yeah, an important message. And... I think it's it's interesting turning this to kind of reframe it, to look at what's the environment or, or what's the parent's role or how can they foster an environment of more grit or um, more exposure therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and yet, I, I I guess I just want to take take the place of a parent here who has to deal with a lot of grayness, though, in this matter. You know, Like I mentioned before, the difference between anxiety and anxiety disorder. What are those moments that... You don't know when to intervene and when to sit back, right? I mean, life is complicated. It's messy. It's tricky.
1: Yeah, and I and as as a, as a parent, I live in that gray area too. Um, the first thing is, I think parents, um, we have to learn to trust our instincts again, because we there's this parenting culture right now, um, sort of like the mental health culture, where you're either hundred percent mentally healthy or you're not, mm. and parenting's sort of the same. You have these twenty boxes to check, on, check off on the good parenting checklist. And if you miss a couple, you feel like everything is going to start going sideways. So the first thing I want to say to all of us parents is that it's okay to be in the gray area. Mm. I actually talk about a lot of parenting fails in my book <laughs> about, about how I really got it wrong. Um, but when we can you know, lean into that mistake, we can almost always make it better. So that's, that's one thing I'd say. And, and the other thing I, I would say about the gray area is that we can always look out for red flags for our kids. So are they really distressed from their anxiety over and over again, day after day, week after week? You know, that we have to take that seriously. We shouldn't just discount that. And seeing a therapist is never a failure. It's a great thing to be able to see a therapist. It's not always easy. There's still access to mental health resources that are hard for many of us. But it's, you know, see that therapist, see what they have to say. If it's... If, it's, if you see that functional impairment that I mentioned before, if you're seeing it get in the way of your child, doing the things they love, finding joy in life, that's another red flag. You know, if it's, again, it's duration, uh, you know, kind of the intensity of it, the, the distress of it, take all those red flags and take them very seriously. I would say one thing to parents though, if you go to a professional and the first thing they want to do is give your child an anti-anxiety medication, just pause for a moment. Now. For some children, you, you do need that extra help. I'm not saying it's not important for some children, but for the vast majority of children, it's actually not. It's actually not the best first step. The best first step is to seek cognitive behavioral therapies, other therapeutic approaches, and then to evaluate in a measured way whether medication can help in that journey. So I would say that's the the sort of process to go through for any parent as they're as they're looking at their child and evaluating whether professional help is is, is, is a good next step.
0: Yeah. And you talked about anxiety as, as these fearful or unknown projections of the future, which, which makes me then think that a lot of the ways that we can remedy this are trying to stay more in the present. And you talk about a lot of these, but I'd love to hear more. I mean, just getting back to things we know that work, exercise, um, music, things of that nature that, that, that just, there's no, no option but to be with ourselves in that moment, being engaged in some type of flow state.
1: That's right, and that empowers us because we do have tools in our toolkit, right, that are readily available. So if anxiety, which puts us in the future tense, helpful, sometimes not always helpful, if it's starting to spiral us into this overwhelming worries, I'm not managing it well, we can always take a step and say, okay, What can I do to step out of the future tense and back into this present moment and immerse myself? Now, as you say, exercise is one of the best, the single best things we can do, (laughs) because not only does it biologically sort of get us on the right track, but it helps us really just be in the moment of what our body's doing, what we're, you know, kind of what we're experiencing at that time. And again, it becomes a practice of learning to let go of the future when we need to, And like any skill, you practice it over time and you can see how, you know, the thoughtful use of exercise or perhaps mindfulness meditation or yoga or whatever it is that you enjoy that brings you joy and that you can fit into your life. These are powerful steps to take. Another really important step is to, in that moment, as you're starting to feel that maybe the future tense is pulling you a little too far, is to reframe what the future is telling you because, as you say, it's about worries and we're sort of on high alert, but when we're anxious, we're also at our most hopeful many of the times. Um, my, my son came to me the other day, he's in finals right now, he's in middle school. And he said, uh, you know, mom, I'm really, I studied for this test in math, but I'm really still, I'm worrying about it, it's really bothering me. And you know, being a 13-year-old, he said, well, you know, you're the expert on this, what should I, you know, how should I think about this? <laughs> and I said, well, I guess the first thing I'd ask you is, are you worried about this test because you care about doing well on it? He said, Yeah, you know, I actually really I really love math and I I really do care about doing well and I've been doing well all semester and and I said so maybe what anxiety is telling you, if you take a moment in the in the present moment and listen to it, is that it's telling you that you care about this test and maybe you need to put in a little bit more studying. I don't know, what do you think? And he said, Well, I think five or 10 more minutes would actually make me sort out a couple things I was confused about. So, you know, so he used the present moment to reevaluate what anxiety was telling him and he decided to study a little bit more. And then tuning into anxiety, he saw that his worries started to go down. He felt less anxious and that was a signal that he was on the right track. So anxiety when we're in the present with it, we take it, instead of taking it as a signal to panic. We can also take it as a signal to learn more about what we care about in the moment. Like what really gives us a sense of purpose and meaning
0: in life? There's a beautiful therapeutic technique which is called externalizing. So it's almost giving voice to something that you're feeling instead of just allowing it to kind of be this ever-present panic. And in this case, it's it just kind of maybe similar to what you're saying, it is asking what is the actual anxiety saying right now? What 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 is it trying to voice? Because I think what we instinctively hate is this—is just this again, this overwhelming sense that something is wrong with us or wrong in the moment, um, which is very vague, and I think brings uh, brings a lot of kind of trouble to our sense of self.
1: I love that, and it is a beautiful therapeutic practice. It's just—it's sort of almost a spiritual practice, mm. right? Because we're we're turning inward and we're giving name to this experience. And we know that this, and sometimes scientists will call this emotional granularity. When we are more specific and granular in the voice we give and how we describe our emotional experiences, it's actually a form of emotion regulation in and of itself to give name and, and understand and, and give words to these experiences.
0: Would love also for you just to reflect on what we're seeing um... In the greater culture, and in particular, interestingly enough, in in sports culture, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, conversation around the tennis player Naomi Osaka or Simone Biles taking steps back from these very high profile athletic pursuits to kind of reevaluate their own mental health, perhaps uh, issues of anxiety in performance. How have you been making sense of that in this greater conversation we have about mental health?
1: I've thought a lot about these elite athletes raising awareness about mental health. I think it's a wonderful thing they've done to be so public with their journey and their experiences. I think in a way what they're f- maybe what they're finally doing in their life, I don't know their full story so I won't say finally, but what they're doing by sharing these experiences is actually listening to their difficult feelings, their anxieties, mm. their de- their fear, their depression, their struggles. And I feel that the culture around elite athletes has really, it discourages that. It, it's, it's all about white-knuckling it through, right? And, and I think that, you know, to say, there, there are two ways to think about this, right? That if you are feeling that overwhelming anxiety and you decide not to compete, on one level you could think of that as avoidance. Right. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I mean, these are people who have not avoided <laughs> their, you know, their entire lives and trained at this high level. On another, by another token, it's, it's, it's listening to their anxiety in the moment and saying, you know what, something is not right with this situation. Something is not right with um, the, this competitive environment that, I have, that I'm in now or that I've developed in. And it's, and it's allowing these folks to take a step back and reevaluate what their career choices and their path is and what failure means to them. Because a big part of anxiety I I think among elite athletes and anyone who has to perform at this constantly high level is perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And we know that perfectionism by, by definition is this toxic standard of flawlessness. And it always leads, it literally there's no upside to perfectionism because it's associated with more mental health problems, and, and, these, and literally diagnoses, not just uncomfortable feelings, but mental health problems, higher risk of suicide, and actually worse performance because there's always diminishing returns when you're so perfectionistic you don't know when to stop. But there's another side, there's sort of the light side of perfectionism that I wonder if some of these athletes are starting to engage with, which is excellenceism. So this idea is, is that instead of pursuing flawlessness, you pursue excellence because you know that you're capable of it You also know that making mistakes along the way is part of that journey. You know that you will fail sometimes. And the way to reach excellence is to pick yourself back up and learn from your mistakes. So you don't have to have a perfect score every time you perform. You know sometimes you're not going to be the gold, the gold winner. And to be okay with that and not to take that as your life is over, but rather to take that as a way to grow even more as a human being. Mm. So I see that these elite athletes are starting some really important conversations around these types of ideas. I hope that it doesn't instead feed into this idea that as soon as we're, you know, some people will say, well, they were anxious and so they had to stop competing because that emotional discomfort was a danger signal. I hope that's not the conversation because I don't think that's true and I don't think that's what these athletes would say.
0: I'm I'm really sitting with that idea of of perfectionism being, being a kind of a curse and something that can be quite unhealthy. Because the mentality there is actually to be perfect to me is just don't make a mistake right it's not it's not actually be you know excellent it's it's don't mess up that that's a much different way of approaching a task than trying to just do your best or shooting for for what you can aim right I mean it's a different thing
1: completely different and you're much you're brittle when when there's it's either it's binary you're a success or you're a failure and you are less excellent there's mm-hmm. There are reams of studies, reams of data to show that when we hold ourselves to absolute perfection as the goal, we do perform less well. So it's also counterproductive. So it's so tragic. And believe me, I I mean, I think I have had many moments in my life, especially as a developing human being, where I was holding myself to a standard of perfectionism. And I think once I learned and refined the ability to be an excellencist, which I think I do quite well now, because I fail a lot <laughs> but i but I really truly believe that's part of the journey, and that I am capable of excellence, but not always. <laughs> I think that once I made that shift, my life had so much more joy, and I was so much my 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 humanity feels fuller, and I kind of could get down to the messy work of being human in a way that just has felt so much better to me
0: yeah and i and I think it speaks to this kind of larger. American exceptionalism or or I mean we could even go further with this that the kind of the micro accomplishments we grow up thinking about um, the sense that our lives should always be on this trajectory of growth and positivity, and if things are always getting better and we 're always getting stronger and always getting more successful that 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 's kind of how we live now, and that anything that takes us off that road even you know momentarily is is a failure. Which i think is really problematic in a way to go about a life
1: it's deeply problematic only machines should live that way Mm. and so we're starting to live (laughs) in this and you know i i'm not one to put the blame at the foot of technology or social media or anything like that i think these are engines for lots of problems in the world many many problems that could be a whole separate conversation but i think one of the profound shifts that's happened as the self-help culture has gained momentum is that we've also gotten into this self-perfection optimization engine way of existing that is on a deep level modeled after this sort of binary machine-like perfection. Mm. And it's destructive. It will never actually succeed, because you can't. And it will make us feel like failures, make us do all the less helpful things, you know, it will make us strive towards perfection instead of excellence. It will make us feel that we're a failure when we are just struggling and maybe start to do some very unhelpful things with our mental health instead of proactively and productively seeking mental health as a constant as a constant journey and, and as a constant work.
0: Yeah. Finally, are there any other kind of aspects of our culture that you wish we could kind of reform? I mean, it could be social media or entertainment or, or ways of being. I mean, just things that you have found have kind of led us to this point that are hard for us to be with?
1: I think right now, because I, I believe so strongly in the benefit of engaging with difficult emotions, mm. that the, the ideas we have around safe spaces are very counterproductive right now. And they're actually, and it's sort of as if we've created this ideal that safety from emotional discomfort is a human right. But, but actually, the opposite is true because our human right is to actually be able to experience the full range of emotions and struggle and come back. And the original, so safe spaces now mean that they are spaces, virtual or, or real or physical, where we can feel um, unassailed by uncomfortable emotions, opinions, things that feel very un, un, unsafe or, or uncomfortable to us. These are actually the opposite of how the original safe spaces developed, which were developed by Kurt Lewin post-World War II. He was one of the fathers of social psychology. These were, what safe spaces were, were places where people combated racism and sexism and anti-Semitic prejudice in the workplace by having the most difficult and raw conversations that you could imagine under the understanding that when someone admitted to experiencing prejudice, to feeling, you know, say I'm the boss at a, at a job and I am going to admit that I feel uh, as a female boss that I am smarter than my male employees and that I'm um, a sexist in this way and I'm going to admit to that because I know it's wrong and I want to fix it. And we would then have difficult conversations about this and I would know that I would not be canceled, there was no canceling back then, but I would not be reviled, I, that, that, that this, I was, it was respected, the idea that I wanted to change and that the hard work of change would happen and we would have a difficult conversation. Those were safe spaces where sensitivity training happened. <laughs> that was what, that's what happened. And research from then and up till now shows that when we have those difficult conversations, that's when transformational change happens at the individual level and the organizational level. So we are denying ourselves those safe spaces that actually allow us to challenge our thoughts and feelings and put guardrails, right? So everyone is still, there's not hate, there's not, you know, vile you know, any sort of anti, you know, any group sort of hate speech, but that we can still admit to failures of opinions and thoughts and feelings and, and, and work on it together. I think we're denying ourselves those spaces and that's to our detriment.
0: Yeah. So the idea of a safe space, maybe to be more transformed into not a space of silence or retreat, but, but, but of empathetic and, and obviously not nonviolent and and non-confrontational conversation, kind conversation, thoughtful conversation, hard conversation. But you know
1: what? Yes, but sometimes confrontational, but that's okay. And we can still respect each other's Opin- we can we can respect each other and have a different opinion and we have definitely lost that gift in today's era and I think Articulating for ourselves as a, as, a, as, a, as a society or as portions of society. What would a safe enough space look like where people There will not be hate speech in that environment Yet we can still challenge each other. What will that look like? What are the, you know, that's what we need to articulate for ourselves an emotional discomfort and being okay with it is the key to that happening, I believe.
0: I've been speaking with Tracy Dennis Tiwari, Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience and the Director of the Emotion Regulation Lab at Hunter College, also the author of Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You. This has been such an interesting conversation, Uh, Tracy. Thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you so much, it's been a pleasure.
0: Well, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. Once again, we invite you to join our Facebook group and continue the conversation and share your thoughts on what you heard today on anxiety. It's such a big topic. Have you personally been struggling with anxiety? What treatments have worked for you? What else could we do as a culture to support those who need help? We'd love to know what you think. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next week.